0: Hello one, hello all, to the first Global in the Granite State of 2023, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. My name is Tim Horgan, and for those of you who do not know, or maybe just forgot, I'm the Executive Director of the Council and your host for this amazing program. I'm so excited to continue to bring these engaging conversations on a variety of global issues providing you with the opportunity to gain key insights into the issues driving the world today. Thank you to everyone for taking the time to engage with our work. Also, a big thank you to all of our members, donors, and supporters for helping us to make all of this possible. Only through your support, donations, and attention can we continue to provide these programs that you have come to enjoy. A special thank you to our main supporter of the Global in the Granite State podcast, McLean Middleton. McLean Middleton is one of New England's premier full-service law firms with over 100 attorneys throughout offices in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. McLean Middleton's attorneys have been providing trusted legal services to businesses throughout the region for over 100 years. Learn more at McLean.com. Today, we are taking a look at at a challenge that has perplexed policymakers and the global community for decades without any resolution, the issue of immigration. Thank you to Dr. Jim Hollingfield, Orva Nixon Arnold Fellow in International Political Economy, Professor in the Department of Political Science, and Director of the Tower Center at SMU in Dallas, Texas, as well as a member on the New York Council of Foreign Relations and a Global Fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center in Washington, D.C., for providing his time and insights into the reasons Western nations struggle to find balance in the immigration debate. Ever since the rise of the nation-state, a debate has raged in countries across the world that aim to define who is or is not a member of the group. In defining borders, citizenship, and international relations, national governments have had to create immigration policy that protects their own citizens, promotes economic growth, and reflects the values of the nation, balancing many factors across an ever-changing environment. This has never been an easy task, especially for countries looking to consider human rights as a part of their immigration strategy, which took on greater importance after the Second World War. The U.S. and Europe have been at the leading edge of this challenge, although smaller countries across the Middle East and Global South have taken in large foreign-born populations
1: as well. Immigrants are highly self-selected. They are almost by definition among the best and brightest people that you find on the globe because they're just highly motivated. And they often find a way around all the obstacles and barriers. And I will say this, you know, the societies, the economies that are going to thrive in the 21st century going forward, they're the ones that are going to be more open to migration, open to trade. You know, The societies that are going to sink are the ones who try to shut themselves off, close themselves off.
0: This is a good starting point for our conversation with Dr. Hollingfield about the subject he has studied deeply from many different global perspectives. He's lived in France, Germany, Switzerland, Massachusetts, North Carolina, Texas, and has worked with governments across North and South America, Europe, East Asia, the Middle East, and Africa. He's also worked with an impressive list of global institutions, including the United Nations, World Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank and a proverbial alphabet soup of other major acronym-related international organizations. After reading a number of Dr. Holland Field's articles and research reports, I had to reach out to him to talk about why immigration policy, particularly from a Western liberal democracy perspective, is such a sticky challenge to tackle. But before we get to that, let's set the stage a little about how we got to where we are today.
1: I know many of your listeners are Americans, I suspect, and uh, we have a long history, a glorious and inglorious history of our republic going back to the founding. You know, the founding fathers, they were all fathers, not mothers. They were steeped in the Enlightenment, liberal thinking, you know, all men, men, not women are created equal. So the country was founded on this great sort of liberal idea, liberal hope that we're going to create a new kind of society here, a new birth of freedom, if you want. And people will come. George Washington said, we welcome everybody to the bosom of America. We, we need you. We need your labor. He had a very open idea about this. But <laughs> this new freedom did not include women. They were not franchised. It did not include African-Americans, slaves. So, I mean, the U.S. in that sense was founded on a contradiction. And race is the fault line that runs throughout our history. You know, we have these cycles, great cycles of Racism and nativism that come and go throughout our history, and we have been in one of those cycles for a number of years now, reaching its zenith a little bit during the Trump administration. I mean, if you look at the policies of the Trump administration to try to exclude certain groups, Muslims, he had a very negative view about Mexicans and Hispanics, for example. If you put those policies, put them down in the 1920s, nobody would have raised an eyebrow because we passed laws in the 1920s the 1924 National Origins Quota Act said you cannot come to the United States unless you fit into the composition of our society as it was in the 1890 census so we wanted proportion it's a little bit like Trump saying we want norwegians in the 1920s i said we only want people from northwestern europe you know which meant the british isles scandinavia germany the netherlands And that was basically it. We wanted to exclude Southern Europeans, East Europeans. Of course, there was a strong anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic element to this. We had already banned Asians in the Chinese Exclusion Act. Your listeners may not know that the first ever federal immigration policy, the first ever federal law was in 1882 to ban all Chinese from immigrating to the United States. And historically, one of the states... That was most nativist was actually California. It was the California delegation that said, we don't need all of these people coming from China. It's a yellow peril. We have to stop them from coming. That was extended to include the Japanese you know, and all people from Asia. So throughout American history, we've had these cycles of the selecting and excluding people on the basis of race and ethnicity.
0: And the basis of race and ethnicity continued to drive the motivations of the United States' immigration policy up until the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, signed into law by President Johnson. This act, also known as the hart celler Act, did away with the nation-based quota system, which has been viewed as discriminatory for a very long time, and instead focused on a seven-category preference system. The main considerations were given to family reunification, highly skilled labor, and refugees the latter accounting for only 5% of total allowable immigration. This act also left out immigration for unskilled labor, which has the lasting effect on immigration today. This was heralded as a step forward for the U.S., particularly in light of the civil rights movement.
1: Remember, the 1965 law was passed right on the heels of the great civil rights acts of 64, 65, so it was basically part of a package that expanded rights very dramatically in the 1960s. You know, This was during the Johnson administration. And the law, as I said, it was intended to be more equitable. And we wanted to take race, ethnicity. I mean, the 1924 law was explicitly based on race. We had something that came to be called scientific racism. And, you know, they, there was this hierarchy of races, you know, with the people from Northwest Europe being at the top of the hierarchy. Our law was based on that, essentially, from the Dillingham Commission, which had been working in the 1910s to come up with recommendations for immigration reform. Well, we got rid of this in 1965. And as I said, we replaced it with what was meant to be an equitable quota system to allow people to come from different parts of the world. And actually, ironically, the family provision, the feeling was that this would be a way to guarantee previous immigrant waves that they would still be able to get their family members in. So actually, the legislators were thinking this will guarantee more immigration from Europe because that's where most immigrants had come from. They did not foresee that immigration would expand so rapidly to the rest of the globe the attorney general at the time, a man named Robert Kennedy, you probably heard of him, was testifying before the, the Judiciary Committee in the Senate. And someone asked him, don't you think this is going to expand immigration from all the rest of the world? And he said, oh, we might have an extra 5,000 people coming in you know, from other parts of the world. Well, he missed that by a long shot. So uh, over a period of 20, 30 years, Going into the 1980s, uh, this law gradually saw the complete change in the composition of immigrants coming in here. So You had many, many more people who were coming from uh, eventually from Asia, coming legally from Asia. But one of the biggest single unintended consequences of the 1965 law, they put into that law a provision that imposed a quota on immigration from the Western Hemisphere. There had never been a quota on any groups coming into this country from the Western Hemisphere before that. Well, guess what? That quota applied to Mexico. And of course, in the 60s, the 70s, the time you get into the 80s with the economic boom of the 80s, and especially in the 90s and even into the 2000s, we have enormous demand for immigrant labor in this country. I don't know how many of your listeners have ever been in healthcare, hospital, retirement homes, construction sites, restaurants. We need access to a foreign labor force, and Mexico provided much of that foreign labor until the 2000s. Since 2007, that has reversed. Over 2 million Mexicans have returned home since 2007. If we're building a wall, we should be building it maybe to keep the Mexicans in so they don't don't go home in such great numbers. But all kidding aside, what we saw in the 70s and 80s was what this created was a huge black market for Mexican labor. So the Mexicans kept coming. There were jobs for them. They simply crossed the border and worked in the country without documents, without papers. So by the time you reach the 1980s, we've got another big problem on our hands, which is we've got millions of people living and working in this country without papers, without documents. Depending on the viewpoint
0: one person takes, this 1965 law was a great step forward based on the outcome, but only an incremental step based on the intent of the law. However, in the end, this law created a major pathway to the expansion of immigration to the United States and opened the doors to new immigrants in ways that had been slammed shut in the past. This is, obviously, not the end of the immigration story here in the U.S., so let's jump ahead to the next big reform, which came in
1: 1986. So the next big immigration reform, 1986, the Immigration Reform and Control Act, Was designed to deal precisely with that problem. And there was a huge argument. But essentially, I mean, let's not mix uh, words here. It included an amnesty, or if you will, a legalization or regularization for anyone who had been in the country, I think it was for, for like 10 years and on good standing, no criminal record and all that stuff, you could apply and be legalized. And I think roughly a million and a half people took advantage of that provision. That was meant to solve the problem of people who had been here established, living here for a long time. And of course, once those million and a half people were legalized, then they could bring their family members in. (laughs) Don't forget. So it roughly doubled the size of, you know, we had this huge spike in immigration, 1986, 87, 88, people who were amnestied under the 86 law. So that was all an unintended consequence of the 1965 law. In 1990, we passed another law, which was intended to reform legal immigration. And the biggest innovation in 1990 was we thought for the first time, we really put high-skilled immigration into the law. We created something called the H-1B visa, which was to let people come here, get an education, work, stay, and perhaps get a green card. Somebody once said, everybody who gets a degree, let's just staple a green card to the degree and keep them in the country. So there was a big emphasis there on getting more high-skilled people in. We still did not take away the family provisions. That's still very important. So from the 1990s, with a few exceptions, right up until the Trump administration and the pandemic, we were taking roughly 1 million people in this country legally, legal immigrants. So the only other major immigration reform that occurred apart from the 1986 and the 1990 law was in 1996, something called the Illegal Immigration An immigrant responsibility act, which was basically a response to something called Proposition 187. You may recall that in in 1994, I believe it was, California voted to exclude all illegal, undocumented migrants from schools, healthcare. This was a law that was passed. The governor at the time was a man named Pete Wilson, and it translated into a very, very harsh crackdown on even the kids, you know, were going to be kicked out of the schools which went against American law, which the Supreme Court had ruled that even the children who were brought here illegally have a right to go to school. So the Congress then shifted very heavily Republican. This was during the Gingrich years, responded to this by pushing through this bill, which really tried to crack down and for the first time, take some of the rights away from migrants. In the end, the bill, it did take away some rights, but it it didn't have the effect intended, which was really to stop immigration or deal with the problem of illegal immigration. So since 1996, we've had no more successful immigration reforms. So here we are today, 27
0: years after the last major immigration reform in the U.S., and yet we are having just as fierce of debates about immigration, both legal and illegal, as we ever had. Again, depending on where you stand, immigration is either a net benefit to the country or a net drain. It is a problem of illegal crossings or not enough opportunity for legal entry. As with many hot-button issues today, the partisan divide seems to prevent any opportunity for change and improvement to our systems, as politicians prefer to see who can shout the loudest rather than who can come up with the best ideas. Of course, it has not always been this way, as we saw a number of reforms pushed through over the years. But the coalition of Republicans who wanted less government regulation and more access to labor, along with the Democrats who were interested in protecting immigrant rights, has broken down.
1: If you go back to the 1986 law, the 1990 law, which were the last two major immigration reforms, those laws were passed on the basis of what I call rights markets coalitions. So you had Wall Street, Republicans, libertarian Republicans, open market, free market Republicans who came together with the civil rights, liberal Democrats to pass the laws. So you had what a rights markets coalition. The two senators who dominated these immigration reforms one was a guy named Teddy Kennedy from Massachusetts who was there and a sponsor of the 1965 law. So he had been involved in American immigration going back to the beginning of his career in the Senate, his partner on the Republican side was the famous uh, Wyoming uh, Senator Alan Simpson. Kennedy and Simpson, between the two of them, basically came together and built a coalition, you know, a Republican-Democratic coalition to pass these reforms. And if you look at some of my work, I point out that from the 50s, 60s, right up into the 90s, we had The possibility of bringing the left and the right together on these key issues they go back to the 1965 immigration act some have said that was a cold war legislation because it looked so terrible you know for the united states which is supposed to be this great liberal democratic bulwark against communism and against all the authoritarian regimes and our immigration law is based on racism you know it's a racial law so we We felt we had to get rid of that, certainly for foreign policy reasons, and also because it just looked bad for a country like this. But what happened in 1990, 1990, 1991, the Cold War ended. (laughs) So that overarching sort of geopolitical dynamic that brought the American left and the right together, it's what I call the liberal interregnum. (laughs) But of course, that big liberal consensus began to fall apart in the 1990s. You have the rise of a more reactionary populist right. You can mark the beginnings of that with the Gingrich uh, years culminating really in the Trump presidency and the Trump election. So it's sort of a 21st century version of the old know-nothing party from the 1850s, which was a nativist party. But the Cold War was the glue. It was the dynamic that sort of held these coalitions together. And with the exception of the 1996 law, which was meant to be a law cracking down on on immigration. We have not even come close to putting those coalitions together. The Republicans have moved much further in the direction of a more culturally based nativist right. You know, in fairness to Republicans, they see this as a rule of law issue, that you can't have a rule of law without control of the borders, can't have a chaotic entry of people into the country. So it's not all about culture and race. On the other hand, we know, I mean, if you just go back and read the editorials in the Wall Street Journal, Wall Street Journal has for decades editorialized about having more open borders because Wall Street realizes if we're gonna have this growth, expanding economy, we gotta have access to labor, especially high-end labor. If you recall,
0: Dr. Holofield talked a little about the creation of the H-1B visa, which is a work visa that people can apply for with the sponsorship of a U.S.-based employer as long as they have a bachelor's degree or higher, and the employer can prove there is a lack of qualified candidates for the position. There are only 85,000 visas of this nature currently available each fiscal year, 20,000 of which are reserved for people with master's degrees or higher. On average, there are over 200,000 applications per year, meaning more than half of the employers who have certified they cannot find an American qualified for the position are not able to hire the best and brightest of the world. This is partly where the argument of immigrants taking all the good jobs begins to fall apart. Yes, immigrants are getting good jobs when they come through this visa program, but as long as the employer is honest in their certification that they cannot find another qualified candidate, then the position would remain unfilled and the work could not move forward. While President Trump and his supporters tried hard to crack down, even on the H-1B visas, this is not the viewpoint of all Republicans. New Hampshire's own governor, Republican Chris Sununu, fought against the restrictions, having seen the benefit of bringing in temporary seasonal workers to his family ski resort. President George W. Bush was, in the words of Dr. Hollifield,
1: Well, I would say even when he was in office, he was one of the most pro-immigration Presidents uh, similar to Ronald Reagan. I mean, the last great pro-immigration president was actually Reagan. It was on his watch and Bush, uh, father, that we passed the '86 and the '90 law. And George W. Bush tried very hard to bring this coalition together. You know, he said, "Let's match willing workers with willing employers, and let's make it possible for people to come and work legally in the United States." And his comprehensive reform, I think, it was proposed in 2006. But his reform was torpedoed by the right wing of his party. There was a guy named Jim Stensenbrenner from Wisconsin in the U.S. House. And in response to the proposed comprehensive reform, he put in an amendment to make all illegal immigrants, to make it a felony, a felony to be an illegal immigrant in the country. Before that, it was a misdemeanor. You had millions of people that went into the streets. You know, in Dallas, Texas, we had almost a million. In L.A., you had way over a million people who demonstrated
0: So now that we have a good understanding of the history behind all of this, let's get to the meat of the subject. What drives migration? Why should it be controlled? And what can we do about this, especially in light of the challenging political climate we find ourselves in? We can start where many conversations around immigration begin,
1: the push-pull
0: economic model.
1: In the field of migration study, we basically call the gravity models the idea that, you know, you've got a surplus of people or labor in one place and a deficit in another. And I think this is very often the simplest and unfortunately, sometimes very simple minded way of looking at migration. As you know, from having looked at my work, migration, especially since the end of the Second World War, this is a much, much more complicated thing, trying to understand what we could call the drivers of migration. I have put a lot of emphasis on markets. I mean, we can never discount markets. So push-pull still plays a role. There's very high demand for labor, both skilled and unskilled labor, in wealthy economies that have high growth rates. You know, this happened in Europe after the war. It happened in the United States uh, going back throughout our history, but especially from roughly the 1970s on. So economics still plays a big part in this, or markets, if you will. But you also have to pay attention to rights, you know, what I call the rights revolution. After World War II, we had a both a quantitative and a qualitative change in rights and the nature of rights. And for your listeners, you can see this unfolding daily. If you look at borders anywhere, uh, whether in, in Europe, along the the northern littoral of the Mediterranean, or here in the United States in the southern border, the rights dynamic is very, very important. And rights come in different packages. Obviously, the biggest change after World War II was the advent of human rights, that everyone in the world is entitled to some basic minimal package of human rights. And that includes a right to seek asylum and to ask for refugee status. It doesn't mean you're going to get refugee status. But it means you have a right to ask. In the United States, the vast majority of countries around the world have ratified the Refugee Convention. So we signed up for that. We put it into our law in 1980 in the Refugee Act. So we have a very powerful rights and markets dynamic at work. And that's been true since the 1950s. But as you know, there is a contradiction in this dynamic, if you will. In order to have rights and secure rights, we have to have states. And in order to have states, we have to have sovereignty. We have to have rule of law. We have to have territorial closure. We have to have citizenship. If you're a democracy, you have to have a demos. You have to know who are your people, who can vote, who can participate. So that's a sort of foundational aspect of every liberal society, liberal democracy. And we live in a liberal democracy. So we can't let everybody in. You know, we can't simply fling open the borders and give rights to everybody in the world that's a non-starter. It would undermine the basis of a social contract. And every, every country in the world faces that dilemma. Okay, so we know that
0: the idea of a fully open border where no one has any idea who crosses is not realistic, or something that many, if any, are advocating for. In the same vein, few, if any, are proposing a completely closed border that would not let anyone in. However, as we see today, There is a need for a steady pipeline of immigrants coming to the U.S., a need that will only increase as our population continues to age. Just look at what has happened to the U.S. economy since the majority of the pandemic restrictions were lifted. There's a huge demand for labor, which, amongst other factors, is leading to inflation, which required the federal government to raise the interest rates and slow the economy
1: down. In economics, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, you know, you need labor. If you're going to have high rates of economic growth, and we can see it now with inflation, you're going to have non-inflationary growth. You need to have access to labor to stabilize the labor market, to keep wages on some kind of equilibrium.
0: But as Dr. Hollifield points out, there is more to the story than just labor markets being the driver of migration.
1: Sometimes there's a security dynamic. And I can give you a perfect example of this when the South Vietnam collapsed. You know, we bent over backwards to take the South Vietnamese, millions of them, to get them here and help them get set up in a new life because we felt we had the security obligation to help the people of South Vietnam. When Cuba went through its revolution, you know, we decided, hey, Cuba is an enemy of the United States. We have to take all Cuban refugees here. So there's a security dynamic. Then we have the attacks of 9-11 and we realized that hey we have to be very careful who we let into the country because we can let people in who are going to be incredibly dangerous for our physical security so that's another aspect of the security dynamic and when the security dynamic kicks in we can see it in in Europe right now i'd love to talk to you more about ukraine because the europeans didn't want all the refugees coming from the middle east and africa but boy they opened their arms to the ukrainians because these guys are our neighbors and on top of everything else, they are culturally compatible with us. So the fourth factor that we have to look at is culture. You know, and that's a very amorphous thing. It involves language, it involves religion, it involves race, ethnicity, you name it. And if you pay any attention at all to this, you know that culture comes strongly into the, into the discussion.
0: So this is a perfect time to bring this American policy discussion with an international flair to a fully international conversation, by switching over to Europe, which is experiencing the same issues around migration that the United States is today. For anyone who stays up to date on global issues knows, which, let's be honest, since you're listening to this, you are probably one of those people, there have been massive waves of immigrants coming to Europe over the past several decades, with a market increase in the past 10 years or so.
1: You know, I've spent most of my life and career working on Europe, lived there for many, many years, uh, working on France, Germany, Britain, Italy, Switzerland. So I've watched this over decades. And immigration was actually, believe it or not, it was a much bigger issue in Europe and some ways still is than it was in the United States. When I started working on this in the beginning of the 1980s, it was a big hot issue in Europe because the Europeans, the Germans in particular, but other countries as well, had decided that their economies couldn't function without bringing in large numbers of foreign workers. And so these were the guest workers. In German, they're called Gastarbeiter, you know, the the guest workers. And the Germans thought, we'll bring in these millions of people from Turkey and Greece and Yugoslavia and elsewhere. We'll make them work for a few years. And then if we don't need them, we'll send them back home again. But what the Germans discovered, go back to my right's point, is that it was not easy to send people back. First of all, the employers have trained them. They don't want to lose the the people that they've trained up. People put down roots. Some of them actually fall in love and marry people who are there in the society. And, you know, they want to remain. There's a famous line from a Swiss novelist called Max Fritsch who lived through this. And he said, I can't remember the German exactly, but in English it translates, we asked for workers, but people. Human beings came instead. So we have to remember that workers are not pure commodities just to be bought and sold in a marketplace. So the whole idea of guest workers, I mean, that's very popular in the United States. Remember, we had our famous Bracero program going back to 1942 well guess what a lot of those mexicans we shipped them back in operation wetback in 1954 but they turned around and came right back and millions of mexicans if anybody asks you why mexicans started immigrating in large numbers to the united states you can tell them it's very simple we went and recruited millions of mexicans to come and work here the germans did the same thing and of course the other dynamic in europe that's very different from what we see in the united states i would say quite different not completely different but Europe had empires. I mean, the French had an empire. The British had an empire. Germany lost its empire after World War I. The Belgians had an empire. The Dutch had an empire. So there's a huge colonial imperial element in the people who are coming. Now, you could say the U.S. had an empire in Mexico and Central America. Maybe that's true. We had an empire that included the Philippines, included Puerto Rico. But the British had an empire that spanned the globe. After World War II, many people immigrated from these former colonies to Great Britain. So the British suddenly discovered they had a concept they called "Civis Britannicus Sum in Latin. We're all British, but they discovered they couldn't keep the imperial policy. They were going to have to restrict the people who came in. So so Britain had, had to gradually tighten up and restrict the people who could come to Britain, immigrate to Britain. In 1981, they passed something called the British Nationality Act. This was during the early Thatcher years which basically said you have a right to immigrate to Britain if you have a grandparent who was born in the United Kingdom. So, of course, what that did is it restricted immigration basically to white people, called the patriality rule. You know, I could spend the next two hours just talking to you about France, you know, where I have lived and worked for many, many years. The French were somewhat more open to immigration from their colonies. They kept it open, even though they fought bitter wars in Vietnam and Algeria. But until the 1970s, the French basically kept the borders open for people coming from North Africa and West Africa. Most people don't know this, but immigration from Algeria was actually suspended by the Algerian government. In 1974, they said the French are not treating our people well, to our nationals, so we're going to stop people from immigrating to Algeria. So so there's this, this very complicated imperial dynamic, colonial dynamic at work in Europe. There is also
0: a strong dynamic of migration within the European Union, with many people from Eastern Europe choosing to move to Western Europe in search of a better job and life. While there is no issue for these people to move within the European Union, it has come with challenges within the countries, as shown by the United Kingdom's
1: decision to leave the EU. Eventually, the Bulgarians, the Romanians, the Hungarians, all of these people would get the right to free movement, and many hundreds of thousands of them chose to go work in Great Britain. So you have this strong cultural reaction against the rise in immigration and diversity in Britain, which is the main driver of Brexit, which caused the British to actually vote to leave the European Union. So immigration played a big role in Britain's decision to leave the EU. So, I mean, Europe has had its own history, its own complicated history with immigration going back at least to the 1950s. And there are many competing models on how immigration should be managed in Europe. One of the biggest challenges to the management
0: of large number of migrants coming to a place like the U.S. or the EU is how to distribute these people across the region. Of course, making sure that each country, state, or community is able to absorb and provide for these people as they get settled is a big task, something that has not been managed well in all cases.
1: It never worked in Europe. It's never worked. I mean, the Europeans, the East Europeans said, we're not going to take any of these Muslims or people coming from the Middle East or Africa. We didn't have colonies. We don't want them coming and settling here. And Angela Merkel, who refused to close, the borders to Germany, when so many people fled Syria and elsewhere in 2015, 2016, she thought when she did that, that other Europeans would step up and take some of these people. And it didn't happen. So Germany uh, Germany managed. I mean, they, they survived, but they had to go convince the Turks to stop the flood of people coming across from the Middle East and Africa in, into Europe. Does all of this sound familiar to you? This leads
0: perfectly into the final point I wanted to cover in this discussion, and that is the weaponization of migrants for political gain.
1: So basically, migrants have become sort of political pawns, if you will, in a political game. And this is happening in the United States, obviously, and it has been going on for decades geopolitically. I hate to compare um, Governor DeSantis with President Lukashenko of Belarus, but Lukashenko did exactly the same thing. You know, he encouraged people to come from the Middle East so he could push them across the border into the EU to embarrass the Poles and the Europeans, uh, to show them, you know, how hypocritical they are in terms of not accepting these people as refugees. And he was doing this to try to to get sanctions lifted on Belarus. And of course, with the support of Putin and the Russians. So, So migrants have become, you know, pawns in these political games. It is a very sad situation for, you know, so many desperate people, many of whom are just trying to survive. You have also seen this with
0: President Erdogan threatening to push Syrians and other Middle Eastern migrants into Europe if he does not get what he wants on his laundry list of items. You see this with Lopez Obrador in Mexico looking to extract concessions from the U.S. in order to help control the flow of migrants through his country and with the EU reportedly having paid 500 million euros to Libya to detain migrants at militia-run centers to prevent them from trying to cross into the EU. This is not a new effort, but one that has taken on increased importance as the number of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers has ballooned in the past decade-plus. To close out our conversation, Dr. Holifield has some key insights as we look to fix broken immigration systems, perverse incentives, and rebuild opportunities for some consensus to create policies that benefits all, not just some.
1: To go back to the main objection that many of those who want to restrict immigration and asylum seeking have, the key is to do it legally. We have to go back to a rule of law system And to go back to my point about the trade-offs, we all know that we need migrants, we need foreign labor. I think everybody understands that unless you are a pure protectionist, you just think that keeping people out will save jobs for Americans. It's very much like those who are opposed to trade. If we close down trade, it will create jobs and save jobs for Americans. We know that that is not a good policy. It's not a viable policy. You're going to end up shooting yourself in the foot. But the key actually goes back to rights, to making sure that the rights of people who come are respected and that when they come, they're coming in a legal and orderly fashion. Now, that's a catchphrase. You'll find it in the new United Nations Compact on Migration and Refugees. So it's an object, it's an aspiration of the international community to have migration be legal and orderly. Obviously, that is easier said than done, but you can see the Biden administration is trying to get there and they're trying to avoid the moral hazard. I don't know how well your listeners members will understand the concept of moral hazard, but if anybody who has worked in insurance knows if you ensure risky behavior and reward risky behavior, people are going to take more risks. So anytime you give the indication that you're going to open your borders, that you're not going to punish people who come, you're lifting the deterrence, people are going to come. And they may come in very large numbers. So moral hazard is always looming. It's always a danger. And politicians have to be careful not to encourage people to make you know, long, dangerous, difficult journeys on the hope that if they can get to the border that they'll have a chance of getting in and you know, perhaps getting asylum, getting refugee status. The flip side of this is if you undermine and attack the rights of foreigners, asylum seekers and others, you are going to undermine the legal and liberal foundations of your society. So the irony is, you know, the way to deal with this is to address the rights question, to find ways of fixing Laws so that people have the opportunity to come legally. And that is what will help us to gain control over these flows of people. So, rights are really the key, the key ingredient, unless you want to throw them out the door. You know, you want to try to build a wall, put a moat, seal the border, sort of the know, East German solution or the North Korean solution. I don't think, as a liberal society, we're, we're ever going to do that. We're not going there. So we've got to confront the issue of rights. We've got to confront the issue of status. We have to recognize that there's a, a tremendous demand for migrant labor. And that one of the great things about the United States is the immigrants succeed. <laughs> you know, they are always, you know, throughout our history, we've denounced them saying they're not going to make it. They're not going to succeed. Some of your members may know that Benjamin Franklin, he argued against Germans. He said the Germans are a dark-skinned, swarthy people. They can never assimilate. They, he said they they can't. They don't know what it's like to live in a free society. So he wanted to stop German migration, but he changed his mind later in life because he was from Pennsylvania and many of his constituents and voters turned out to be German immigrants. So you see this over and over again in American history. The the naysayers, the pessimists, you know, the Mexicans are never going to make it. Well, guess what? They're making it. They're succeeding, just like many previous generations of immigrants. So having a relatively open society where we respect the rights, we recognize the, the economics of this. We try to manage any security concerns. We don't want People coming here are going to do us us harm, and we should not get hung up on the cultural thing.
0: Thank you to Dr. Jim Hollifield for his time and insights into this complex and ever-changing issue. Also, thank you to you all for listening to our discussion here today. If you have not listened before, please do take the opportunity to go back and listen to other episodes, as it is a great way to stay up to date on current global issues. If you've enjoyed today's discussion and want to know when our next episode drops, click the subscribe button wherever you are listening, or join our email list at wacnh.org slash mailing list. This has been the Global in the Granite State, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. Tim Horgan is your host, editor, producer, director, audio technician, and whatever else nice and friendly title you want to give him. As always, our theme music is Admin by AA Alto, and our interlude music is Deep Wounds Need Healing by Ketza. Until next time...